This is the Thorn Podcast, Performance Edition, the show that navigates the complex world of sports science and explores the latest research on diet, nutritional supplements, and the human body. I'm Joel Totoro, Director of Sports Science at Thorn. As a reminder, statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast Performance Edition. We're excited to welcome back friend of the pod, Dr. Laura Kuntis. Dr. Kuntis is the Senior Vice President of Medical Strategy at Thorn. She has a PhD in exercise science, a master's in both kinesiology and nutrition, and is a registered dietitian. Obviously, a wealth of information and one of my all-time favorite colleagues. Welcome back, Laura. Hi, Joel. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, we've got a ton to get to today, and I think we could probably record about 10 podcasts worth of episodes, but today I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the recent publication in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research that you worked on that looked at the nutrient status of NCAA athletes entering the NFL draft. Can you talk a little bit about how that project came to be and what your initial goals were? Yeah, so it's really funny. A couple of years ago, we had a great opportunity to work with the, the football guys who I just left their collegiate season. It was January of the year, and they were all training at the same facility for the NFL Combine. So about six or eight months before this this project actually started, we were like, hey, this is a really unique group of people, and there's really little research on these people in between this, this collegiate season and the NFL career. So we put together a study, knowing that we would have access to these guys and you know, a lot of us got around a table and started brainstorming what we wanted to do. And we had these grandiose ideas and the budget was really high. And we were thinking to ourselves, we only really have like seven weeks with these guys. So they're going to come in, they're going to train, we're going to do something with nutrition, and then they're going to go off to the NFL combine, which for anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's essentially like the biggest tryout of your life, the biggest interview for the NFL draft. And so, yeah, the study came about. We initially really wanted to do, like I said, something grandiose. So we wanted to do blood draws. We wanted to do performance measures. We wanted to do, you know, strength measures, speed, essentially like a mini combine, but we really pared it down to just focus on nutrition this time. One of the important things to mention is that these guys were all coming from Power Five conferences where they have a slew of sports dietitians. They have strength and conditioning, physical therapy, sports psychology, just really surrounded by unlimited feeding, right? So just surrounded by all the ability to be as, you know, ideally fueled as possible. What were some of kind of your expectations going into it? What did you think we were going to see? And then we'll talk about what we actually found. Yeah. So it's funny you say that, you know, they did come from, they be cherry picked, right? Like, so each team only sends a few guys, maybe at best to the NFL combine. So these were the best of the best from every team. Um, So it's essentially cherry picking from every team and and the collegiate, um, at least the teams that are probably ranked. So um, yeah, going into this study, I had great expectations. I was thinking to myself, you know what, these guys are literally at the peak of their career. Pretty much everybody just came off of a bowl game. Everybody's in the, you know, best physical condition of their life that I was like, this is going to be kind of a boring study. Like, we're just going to pull blood from these guys and they're going to be like, okay, everything's great. Wonderful. But it was quite surprising. And it was a little bit the opposite, you know, I would say. And it's really funny because we we were looking and, and just anecdotally, we didn't really capture this in the study, but we were asking guys like, how do you feel? Like, what's going on? You know, are you sleeping good? Are you eating well? Like, what's, you know, what's going on with you? And really, these guys had no complaints. It was like they were nervous. They were anxious. They had seven weeks before this interview. And so across the board, I would say a lot of these guys were feeling like 
a-okay and top of their game. So it was quite surprising when we actually dug into the study and dug into their results, what we saw. Yeah, and I think, I think that's another thing to kind of tell our listeners about. So the combine is all they do for seven weeks, right? They live together, they have meals prepared for them. It's, there's no focus of school, there's no academics. It's legitimately train, rest, recover, right? So I think a lot of times we, and even you know people working at the elite level, we, we confuse fit with uh, internally healthy and optimal. So I think it, it's gonna be interesting. So actually, you know what, let's just dive into it. Let's just talk about some of the things you found and, and some of the really surprising outcomes we found. First, I would say one of the most surprising thing is, is that not everybody likes needles. <laughs> Believe it or not, a lot of these guys were like, wait a second, I have to get poked by that. And um, of the 30 guys that we looked at, I would say anecdotally, a lot of had never had their blood drawn before. So first and foremost, that was just straight up surprising. But we pulled 79 selected biomarkers. So we went into this like study with no sort of preconceived notion of what we were gonna find. We just wanted to do a pretty optimal panel that a person, an athlete, whoever could get done at like a Quest Diagnostics or through their doctor. So nothing super, super specialty, but something that probably should be done at like a yearly physical. So of these 79 biomarkers, across the board, I would say at least one person, if not more, was suboptimal for what American standard ranges are for different biomarkers. So, I mean, we looked at things like cholesterol, we looked at hormones, we looked at a few different inflammation markers like HSCRP, homocysteine. We looked at the, the general insulin resistance markers like regular serum glucose, insulin, hemoglobin A1C. We pulled a few different vitamins, just a few B vitamins, vitamin D, some minerals like red blood cell, magnesium, calcium, ferritin, zinc. And we also did a unique panel, which is a a red blood cell measure of fatty acids, which does the entire composition of your red blood cells, what what they're made up of fatty acids. So it's a really big breakdown of, I think, 24 or 26 different fatty acids, but it will give you omega-3s and DHA and EPA, AA, and, and every other fatty acid that you could possibly name. As we kind of dug into it, there was kind of like the five major biomarkers that we saw kind of pretty consistently low, which I know surprised me, you know, especially having worked at that level. You know, I d- we had done some work with vitamin D and I was, you know, surprised at how low those were, but it was winter in Michigan. So I was like, okay, but you know, these guys were from all over the country. They were training outside in, in Arizona. Can you talk a little bit about those five specifically? I think were were really insightful. Yeah. So across the board of these 79, if there were, you know, one or two people abnormal within the ranges, we didn't necessarily think it was too, too alarming, but across the board, the majority of guys, and when I say the majority of guys, I literally mean like 97% of these guys were had a low omega-3 index. Okay. So um, omega-3 index is, is the measure of omega-3 fatty acids in those red blood cells. And most people probably want that around eight to 10%. And our guys were averaging right around 4%. So we're looking at things that are going to change a slew of different pathways in the body. Um, And we can get into that specifically, but we saw homocysteine, which is an inflammation marker to be elevated in the group of these guys significantly. So, and I think that was around 40% of the guys had elevated homocysteine when comparing that to a regular standard uh, reference range. 
vitamin D was low in most of these guys. And as you mentioned too, right, like they are practicing outside, but it is winter. It was January. And most of these guys, when they are outside, they have full clothing on helmets, everything. So very little skin exposure out to the sun, if anything. So that wasn't super, super surprising. Um, but we also saw low uh, red blood cell magnesium level. And then we also saw elevated AA to EPA ratio, which is the arachidonic to eicosapentaenoic acid. So those five biomarkers across the board averaged anywhere, like I mentioned, between like 81%, 97% of the guys being abnormal. And so what's also super interesting is that we kind of took this blood panel, as I mentioned, and went through it and uh, we were like, what, what are the similarities between these biomarkers that were abnormal? Like what, what pathways are these influencing? Like, what are these guys now at risk for now that these are all like abnormal or out of range? And coincidentally, these all have significant impact to uh, brain function and, and networks, metabolic networks that might affect concussion if or when these guys were to get one. And they're in a sport where they have the highest risk of concussion. You know, these guys, NHL or hockey players, soccer nowadays has really high instances of concussion. And so thinking about putting these guys on the field in a sport where they, they're, they're more likely to have a concussion with suboptimal layer, uh, levels of biomarkers that are going to be influencing the outcome of the concussion just seems mind boggling. So we had to think about these biomarkers in a different reference range, right? Like we shouldn't be comparing them to the reference ranges that somebody like I am using or my mom or somebody of a general American status we should be thinking about these in the sense of like, what do athletes in concussion instances, like what levels should they be at for optimal uh, outcomes? And so through the literature, we were able to find some references that were suggesting different tighter or higher or lower reference ranges than what the general American population would be compared to. And so we actually saw that these guys across the board, um, 90 to hundred percent of the athletes did not meet those ranges in these five specific biomarkers that we looked at. Yeah. So I think, I think that's, it's alarming. And, and these are things that people generally don't get access to, right? You know, you get your pre-participation physical and that, you know, checks, make sure, you know, sickle cell gene isn't there. Maybe if you're lucky, your, your university is, is testing vitamin D, but this whole idea of the, the nutrients that kind of fuel brain health making them kind of adequate to start with, you know, I think it is a kind of emerging topic. And I think it's one of those things like we've, those of us, you know, in the sport have always assumed there was, you know, some suboptimality there to prove it and to really see it in your face like that was pretty alarming. So for our listeners, I think the one we hear about the most and, and are more likely to interact with is the idea of omega-3 index. Can you talk like a little bit about what that is, what that means, and some of the ways to kind of support that in the diet, both food and supplement and whatnot? Yeah. Omega-3 index is like it's probably one of the coolest biomarkers that people don't test often enough is what I would say. It's really inexpensive to do um, and it will give you a ton of information. There's actually, it has applicability beyond, beyond concussion, beyond athletes. It's actually um, a biomarker that, you know, pregnant women should be looking at or kids growing up in their cognitive uh, abilities. Omega-3 index is like really big associations with cognitive flexibility, with mood, and so that's that, that postpartum depression. So, you know, pregnant women, it has different associations with personality. There's a lot of military studies with omega-3 index, also with brain function, and there's high 
associations of a very low omega-3 index with high rates of suicide too. So it's an actually, you know, there's a lot going on in the brain and the brain needs um, the capability of the cells to be working at their optimal functioning capabilities and structure really dictates how function can work. And so making sure that the structure of every cell is really optimized will work in your benefit. So I, I think omega-3 index is one of those biomarkers that if you have the capability of measuring it, that you should. Yeah. And then is, is the answer just supplement? How do you figure out what the right omega for you is? Yeah. So that's a great question. So there are some really cool calculators online to help you figure out like how many grams or milligrams of what type of omega-3 you should be taking. So whether you should be focusing on DHA or EPA or a combination of the two, there are ways to do that. So there, there are things online where you can type in your level and then the level that you want to get to, and it will spit out like a calculation for you. So you might only need to be taking 1000 milligrams or one gram, and I might need to be taking double that. And I personally think the best way of measuring this is to, is to measuring it on like a consistent basis. And so your red blood cells have a turnover rate of around three to four months. And so I wouldn't necessarily test it any sooner than that. And I wouldn't go too much longer than that if you are looking to optimize it. So every three to four months, which really works well for, for some athletes and they're in and out of season schedules. Yeah. So we, we talked a little bit in this study, obviously because of the risk factor involved in, in playing football and, and TBIs and, and concussion, but those nutrients are brain nutrients, right? So like if I have a brain and I'm using it, I need those nutrients as well, right? Of course. Yeah. This is not just for athletes or for people in the high risk situations. You know, like I mentioned, I think it's, there is a normal reference range for the standard American. And it is, it's the same sort of, you know, situations that these biomarkers are related to. If things are related to your mood, your anxiety, depression, brain function, things like plasticity and learning and memory. A lot of these biomarkers that we found abnormal are, are going to influence so many pathways, things like platelets and, and how you clot with your blood. I mean, it's just, it's all of these pathways are connected, which is the funny thing, right? And so when you think of omega-3 index and you look up the research, you're going to see a lot of research on cardiovascular disease. And, you know, NFL athletes are at high risk for cardiovascular disease, especially in their retirement years, just from being like larger individuals. But, you know, if you think about the pathway and you think about what the mechanisms are happening, you know, it really does boil down to, to influencing so many other pathways because they're all so connected. Yeah. So the question we usually get when we try and like apply learnings that we have in a, in a professional athlete group is, you know, we always get the question, well, I'm not an athlete, you know, does that apply to me? So is, is part of this just because their needs are so much higher or can we go the other way and be like, hey, they had every access to, you know, we all know what it's like trying to fit a, a perfect meal plan into a, our regular schedule, right? So they had access, they were doing it for them, all this stuff. And is it the other way? Is it, yeah, yes, they have higher needs, but they also had higher access. So like how, what does this mean to the average person, the, the weekend warrior, the casual exerciser? Yeah, it's like the chicken and the egg conundrum. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, yes, athletes have higher needs in some instances. Um, I do think that the average person should be just as concerned about biomarkers in general. I think all too much we think about athletes in the sense that like, how can we get them healthy today? Or how can we get them healthy for the game on Saturday? Whereas we really should be thinking about like, how can we extend their career to next year? How can we make sure that they're going to make the Olympics four years from now? 
how can we make sure that they're still playing in next decade? You know, we're, we're too much in the focus of here and now, but we ultimately like they're humans, their health matters just as much as any individual. And we always should be thinking about that as people who aren't professional athletes. I'm not a professional athlete. Like, you know, we should be thinking about things like, how can I make sure that I am not needing to see a doctor a hundred times a year uh, when I'm 50 or 60? You know, it's, it's like, what things can you be doing now that will prolong some of the age-related issues that typically come about later in life? Yeah, I think listeners of the podcast will recognize, I, I often say that, you know, over the years of working in human performance, uh, I found a majority of my impact has been at what I call the human level, right? You have to be a human before you can be a human performer. So two of the biomarkers in the study, magnesium and vitamin D, I think a lot of people are relatively aware of the idea of vitamin D and that, you know, it's its poor food source and, you know, if you live in the Northern climate or you wear sunscreen, magnesium, I think is we're finding as prevalent, if not more, you know, depending on the person in a suboptimal to even we see it clinically low in athletes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of magnesium and kind of what, how important it is? Yeah, I think magnesium is probably one of the most like undervalued minerals in the body. I think I read a statistic somewhere that it's involved with like 400 plus different reactions or, or chemical processes in the body. But I mean, it, in the brain, it's doing a lot. It's doing um, plasticity, learning, memory, et cetera. But in the muscles, it's helping them relax, um, which also includes your heart. It has effects on your bone. It has effects on your GI tract. It has effects on your skin, your hair, your health. It's, you know, it's super important. And I think a lot of people don't get enough of it because it is in fruits and vegetables. Yes, but it is in like nuts. And I find a lot of people have an allergy to certain foods or they're avoiding food groups or, you know, it's just one of those foods that like people don't always think about and, and get enough of. So I think that a magnesium supplement is something that is generally a great option for a lot of people. Um, it's in my own supplement plan, <laughs> to be honest. And so I, you know, I, I do think it's one of those undervalued uh, nutrients, especially for general Americans as well. Yeah. And I would say it's hard to pick your, your favorite supplement or nutrient. It's like picking your favorite child, but magnesium is very high on my list as well. So Laura, we're, we're coming up on the halfway point. Normally we take a break here and, and get to some listener questions. Uh, anything else kind of about the study you kind of want to make sure to mention or any findings that kind of surprise you or you think are important to talk about? I would say that, you know, one thing that we did do with this study was that we did take this information and we optimized the athlete's plan afterwards. So if anybody reads the study and they're like, oh, wow, you found this information. What did you do with it? We did. So don't worry. These guys got like a nice precision nutrition plan afterwards that included diet, supplementation, and even some other additional like lifestyle type suggestions to help optimize some of these, these factors. One of the things we didn't specifically touch on was homocysteine and just um, how there is a genetic component to some of these measures that we looked at. And while we didn't do genetic testing in these guys, I do think that that's something that would be nicely paired with biomarker testing in athletes and general people. So it is something to consider when you are doing this. Awesome. Like I said, so much information to get through, but uh, we're going to take a short break here. And when we get back, like I said, we're going to get into some questions from our listeners. So uh, we'll be back shortly. The foundation for every good health routine starts with a multivitamin mineral formula. But what multi-formula is right for your unique body and lifestyle needs 
The team at Thorne has made it simple for you to find out. Just head over to thorne.com to take a multivitamin mineral quiz. Simply answer a few questions about your diet and lifestyle, and their medical experts will recommend an ideal multivitamin mineral formula for you. Treat your body to the health it deserves with Thorne's Foundational Health Solutions. Learn more by visiting thorne.com. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. All right, Dr. Kunsis, let's get into some questions from our audience. So we get this a lot and you, you briefly touched on it earlier, but we get the question of how often should I retest and can I test again too early? And I know that's going to be different for everything, but kind of just in general, what's kind of, if you have some general recommendations on retesting, what would they be? Yeah, that's a great question. I do get a lot as well. Um, Some of the stuff that we were measuring here is in the red blood cell. So like I kind of said before, I wouldn't necessarily recommend retesting until after about three months, but you got to make a change in the meantime, right? There needs to be some sort of intervention, whether it's diet, lifestyle, exercise, whatever it may be. And so I would say usually every three to six months would be great for teams looking to do testing. Usually budget is a constraint. And I always I always like to to talk to them about what the options are. And I usually say, you know, if you can only do testing once, do it preseason, do it, do it before people are put into a situation where their health and their, their well-being and their profession is on the line. And so then you have the, the most opportunity to be making the changes, right? So the earlier, the better. I do recognize that some of this testing can be expensive. And so there are options, right? If you're working at a collegiate level, like look to see if there's any research studies you can get your team involved with that, that is not risk risky, you know, obviously to the season, but could include some sort of like free testing in the professional level. I know there's still budget constraints. And I think it's one of those things that you always have to pose the question to the rest of the, the medical staff and the managers and who are controlling the budget just to say, this might be expensive now, but it's going to be way more expensive if this athlete's sitting on the bench. So you got to think about it. And for, for everybody else, you know, people who are doing this for their own health and well-being, it's expensive, yes, but it's totally worth it. And sometimes the solutions that you need to do to fix anything abnormal can be very inexpensive. So you, you just, it's necessary. Yeah. And I think you hit on a good point that, that I've been talking to a lot of uh, teams about is it's great to have a baseline, which is super important, but do you see it where we can get to the point where maybe checking some biomarkers, you know, mid season or whatnot can, can be predictive of maybe under recovery injury risk increase. Like if, if some of these nutrients are starting to drop, can, can you be, not necessarily 100% active, but maybe inform some decisions on how the team trains and recovers. Is that something you think we can easily get to? Definitely. And the way I see even testing going is like the prices tend to get a little bit cheaper as technology advances. So yeah, I would definitely recommend that I would do comprehensive testing at the beginning and then through the season, check biomarkers that you need to be checking. Check the status of vitamin D, knowing that your athlete has been training inside for the last six months. I was a swimmer. Everything was indoors for me. I didn't have the luxury of swimming in California. So, you know, I can imagine that a lot of us were vitamin D deficient through the winter season. So, you know, it's one of those things that 
And as long as you know up front, then you can make those tweaks through the season as necessary with, with smaller and more precise panels. So I'm going to hijack the listener questions for a second and ask you a follow-up that I have that I get asked a lot. So there are so many different ways to test now. I get a lot of, you mentioned red, red blood cell, um, testing the red blood cells. I get a lot of frustration for people. There's tests out there that are white blood cell t- tests. So when you compare the results, people get really confused and it's frustrating because you're not apples and to apples. What is the difference between white blood cell and red blood cell testing? Yeah, that is a good question. That brings up a great point to make sure that that whoever is, is administering the testing is choosing the right constituent or the right medium of where you're measuring some of these biomarkers. So like I mentioned, specifically in this test, we chose red blood cell magnesium. That's different than serum magnesium. Do not compare the two to each other. Things in the red blood cell tend to be more of a reference of stored or like what your body actually has in it. Things in serum tend to be a little bit more transient or could probably change a lot quicker. White blood cells have some value to them as well. They're, again, another probably a measure of um, a little bit more of stored capabilities. But I, and there are things that you can measure in white blood cells, but it just brings up a really great point of making sure that you know exactly what you're testing and in what medium. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about athletes who, again, have access to team docs and whatnot. This next question comes from a listener and says, I don't have access to my doctor for blood work. How can I know if what I'm doing is working? Loaded question, but uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would look for for companies that have the capability of ordering your own testing, right? So like become empowered, take life into your own hands here and start to figure out where you can get blood work done yourself. Thorne obviously has test options and there are other companies out there doing it as well, but look for a place where you can, you can pay for it out of pocket, go get it done and then have a nice visual of your results with education and a plan. And that's one of the things that Thorne does really great is that personalized plan of like how to fix it or, or not, if you don't need to do anything. I've read people's uh, recommendations before and it literally says, keep doing what you're doing, which means you're doing it right. So that is an option as well. But I would just say like, you know, look for, for doing it on your own if you can't do it through your doctor or through your own insurance. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big shift in in kind of just medicine in general is is owning your own information, but you having access to it forever. Like you know, you couldn't be like, hey, what is my three year average of cholesterol, right? Unless you happen to save your notes, right? That all lived with the doctor. How does Thorne handle that kind of like? How do I know? How can I trust Thorne with my personal health information? Yeah, we do a really great job of um, our firewalls and our protection, and one of the other cool things about our website is that you can share it with your doctor, right? So you can choose to send it off to them and they'll have access to being able to view your results. And I've done that before with different tests and I find that to be really useful, but yeah, you can, you can be sure that Thorne does um, all everything necessary and then some to make sure that your information is private and only only viewed by you. Yeah. I mean, it came in super helpful for me. I just moved across country, had to get a new primary care physician. So just being able to roll in, you know, with my existing lab work, he'd be like, okay, this is where we're starting. You know, this is, this is where we need to, so they, he knew so much more about me than like, and I'm awful about talking about myself. And, you know, even though I, you know, I fluent in, in, in medical terms, but I'll just be like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. You know? Right. But then he's like, no, your numbers say differently. Right. So it's always good. I, I just think it's so important to, you know, kind of be consistently watching it. And I love nothing more than we're seeing a lot of this with the people we work with who, you know, we mentioned earlier, like we tested, we found something wrong. I'm working on it. I want to prove that what I'm doing is working. Right. And like the best art, my favorite is the same as yours when, you know, we get a follow-up back and we're like, yeah, 
no, keep doing what you're doing. It's working amazing, right? So I think that's super important. I'm going to hijack another question here. So uh, this is just the Joel question hour, but we've talked a lot about blood work, but you know, one of your expertise, and this is a whole other podcast, but is what we're being able to tell and predict and learn about you from a biome test, right? So your blood work is super important, but can you give like just a brief overview to those who may not be familiar, like what the biome can tell us about your body? And like, like you said, red blood cells tell you this, white blood cells tell you that, serum tells you this, what can I learn from the biome? And how does that kind of, and how does that kind of support blood work? Like, should I do both? Ideally, yes. <laughs> if you can, um, I would definitely say yes. But the, the gut microbiome is like such a cool frontier. And um, I do see a lot of athletes doing it now. And I mean, clearly many, many general people, but it really is entering the athletic space as well. But yeah, from a small stool sample, very, very small. So don't get skeeved. Um, you can tell a lot. So the, the GI tract in your, in your mouth, all the way down to your anus is harbored with bacteria and there's only so much real estate in there. So if it's right now filled with a lot of bad bacteria, the goal is always to like try to optimize the good so it can take over the space of the bad. But all of these bacteria have so many physiological processes. And, you know, it's really interesting because we're still learning day to day what everything is doing and what it means to health. But the bacteria in there can be predictors of long-term chronic health. They can be predictors of short-term acute, you know, immune function and digestion and absorption capabilities. There can be markers of inflammation in there. There can be a bunch of things that, again, if you're looking to optimize health, it's so complementary to blood work and very non-invasive. So pretty easy to do. Yeah. Awesome. And there's just, there's so much to think about, but uh, I'm going to get back to the, the listener questions. And this is one we see all the time. And you briefly mentioned this earlier as well, but what's the difference between adequate and optimal when it comes to nutrition recommendation? And am I just, am I okay just taking the recommended daily amount? So I think in, in some instances, yeah, the recommended daily amount might be okay for people, but I think there are people who are looking to turn adequate into optimal. I think my own personal definition of adequate is like what I need to be doing to just like get by. And I think optimal is like what I need to be doing to be top 1% in anything, right? Whatever your profession is, if you're an athlete, that's your profession. But if you're a normal human being that is just a you know general day-to-day worker or a mom or whatever, like you have a different profession, different goals. So, you know, I think thriving is, is a little bit different. So I don't, I don't ever recommend people doing huge dosing or going way over numbers without knowing what you're doing and, and what, what we're even talking about specifically. But I think, yeah, there's a lot of practices that you can be doing and sometimes a combination of supplementation, but lifestyle changes and diet and exercise changes as well. So to me, I think adequate and optimal are two totally different things. Yeah, I think, but that is a common misconception. Everyone's like, you know, oh, it, it says I got 100% of my daily needs. And, you know, I'm like, well, that's kind of to prevent disease in the average person. That's what that number is. That's like, don't die. We're trying to be, be awesome. Right. And so, you know, and obviously it's different for each nutrient, but yeah, that is a question we get all the time. And I was like, oh, no, this is like 2,000 times my daily amount. And I was like, yeah, you probably need it. It's okay to, but yeah, no, it is, it is a lot to learn. And, you know, we, that's what we're here for is to educate people on stuff like this. But my favorite question that happens inevitably, we always get asked, uh, what is your supplement routine and why? 
Oh my gosh. People might freak out about this because I do take a lot of stuff, but, um, I, mine actually is quite seasonal. And right now I live in Arizona. So we are entering what I call the time that I spend a lot more time outside because it's actually reasonable to be outside. So I've stopped taking my vitamin D, but my morning routine includes thorn basic nutrients to a day, a Niacel 200, which I just recently added to my routine and I love it. I have upped my Mariva from one in, one in the morning, one at night to two in the morning, two at night, because I'm starting to train for a marathon that's in February. And that makes me actually feel really good when I wake up in the morning, a little bit less stiff than, than usual. My daytime routine includes collagen, I sometimes do our whey protein or aminos, depending on like what my workout might be. I drink aminos sometimes um, like pre or post. And then usually whey, if I'm drinking it, it would be post-workout. And then before I go to bed, I take two more of my Mariva and um, I do our magnesium bisglycinate, which is, I think, my all-time favorite product on our line. But mix that into a little bit of water, down it with my Mariva, and I sleep like a baby. Yeah, it's, um, you know. It's rare that I'm, 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 you can't see me, but I'm glowing and smiling because I just love the the magnesium and, and how much it impacts, you know, just kind of for me, sleep quality and just overall health. But um, you mentioned Niacel. That's a relatively new product for a lot of people. Can you just quickly give kind of an, an overview on what it does and why you've added it to your routine? Yeah, it does a lot. I mean, I think the way that we talk about it at Thorn is, is in like our healthy aging category. And I don't, I don't love that name because I feel like I'm a little too young to be thinking about aging, but I think about it as like aging gracefully. It's a product that it's nicotinamide riboside, which is going to support production of NAD plus in the body, which if anybody wants to think back to like eighth grade biology, NAD is the a molecule that's used in so many processes of glycolysis and Krebs cycle and oxidative phosphorylation, if you can even remember those, but essentially it's energy production in the body. And so you make a lot less as you age. And so um, I'm just looking at it from a standpoint of like, okay, I'm trying to work out. I'm still trying to run like I used to five years ago or 10 years ago. And so day to day, it's my like insurance policy, if you will. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine at some point I'm going to have to up that to the 400 though. Yeah. Hey, forever young, right? Yeah. But I think that's something good to point out is that there are things in the body and, and nicotinamide riboside being one of them that legitimately do drop as you get older. Like there's nothing you can do. I mean, there is something you can do about it, but biologically it's going to happen. It's a fact, right? So it's kind of inevitable. So I think it is important for people to realize like, yeah, your supplement in the, in, just like yours is seasonal, your supplements at 20, 30, 40, your kind of biological needs change or what needs the most attention. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting product. And I think the more people learn about it, it's going to be uh, pretty impactful across uh, a lot of different populations, but we have time for one more and knowing you and I, and the conversations we've had offline, this could be another hour, but we'll, we'll keep it relatively short. Our final listener question is Thorne seems like they are always ahead of things. What are you excited about in the future? Oh my gosh. So many things. I don't want to get in trouble, but I believe we're going to be having some new testing options in 2022. So I'm really jazzed about that. We have a few new product launches coming out too. And so that might switch up my, my routine uh, moving forward. But I would say that we have some really cool innovation going on that's even behind the scenes and like our manufacturing. And I'm excited for this just further personalization, right? Like making sure that what I'm taking is for me and what you're taking is for you. And we're really moving the needle in that space. Yeah. And I think that's one thing people don't don't realize is that science moves fast as far as like ability to gather information. But for the first time in, you know, decades where 
we're blessed with the problem of great we can we can identify these things but a lot of your work is in validating so can you talk a little bit about just you know kind of overview just to let people know how much goes beyond the scenes of validating our tests like I know you and I know that's a big part of your job so I think it's just super interesting to see a little bit behind the cloak. Yeah, we we have teams of people working on these tests that we put out. Um, I mean, we have data scientists, we have medical doctors, naturopaths, dietitians, PhDs. You know, we we do research on everything that we do. We're pulling all the research. We're talking to experts. Many of the experts are on our team. So I mean, it's a it's a multi multifaceted approach to designing these tests and designing the education that goes behind them, and then like the interventional recommendations as well. So I would say that they're very high class and they're better than you would ever get from just one single doctor. You know, you get to look at your own results. You get to view your plan. You get to decide if you're going to do it or not. And then, and then ultimately retesting is in your hands as well too. So it's a, a very multidisciplinary approach to, to healthcare. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Laura, thank you for giving us access to your brain, your time. For our listeners, if you want to learn more about some of the topics we covered today, uh, Dr. Kunzis has done a previous episode where she dug pretty deep into some biomarkers and you know some of that kind of stuff that we glossed over that has a lot of science behind it. So uh, check out some of our previous podcasts, look forward to future ones, and then head over to thorn.com and check out the Take 5 Daily section, uh, which is a huge library of articles on every, all things health, wellness, performance. So there's so much more to learn out there that we couldn't co- cover in this topic. Laura, we'll have to have you on again. There's so much to cover, but you know, thank you so much for your time and we appreciate you being here. Thank you. All right. Excellent. That was Thorne Senior VP of Medical Strategy, Laura Kunzis. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast Performance Edition. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 Daily blog. For this performance edition of the Thorn Podcast, I'm Joel Totoro, reminding everyone to stay active and stay hydrated.